Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a very unusual episode of the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Today, we are talking to someone who has done a project that I think will be near and dear to many of our hearts. Today, I'm speaking with Lynn Greenberg, who has created a project that I think will speak to many of our hearts. Lynn is a wife, mom, grandma, a very retired attorney. Lynn is also the parent of Jonathan Greenberg, who has dyslexia. And in adulthood, during COVID, they started writing a picture book, helping other kids with dyslexia understand what dyslexia is about and how to deal with the diagnosis and see it as an aspect of strength. The book is called, well, Lynn, can you tell us the name of the book? Sure. Hi, thanks for having me. The name of the book is Robbie the Dyslexic Taxi and the Airport Adventure. And um, John and I co-wrote it and he did all the beautiful illustrations. I loved the book when you sent me the review copy. I loved, first of all, the illustrations are adorable and quirky, but I loved how positive the message was without sort of minimizing how challenging it is to navigate the world with dyslexia. 100%. 100%. Yes, uh, that's what we were trying to do. And we've had so many positive, so much positive feedback about that point. So thank you. So can you tell me just as a fellow post-traumatic parent, can you tell me what it was like as John's mom before he was diagnosed? What was your diagnosis story like? So uh, John is my youngest of four. And so I I know a little bit about raising children. All of them are unique and special. John was my only child, though, that didn't want to walk the street, didn't want to sing the ABC song. He could name every single Thomas the Tank Engine, but not tell you that Thomas started with the letter T. So I knew he was bright. I just couldn't figure out what was going on with him. And when you asked like his his you know nursery school and then kindergarten teachers, they would say, you know, he's a boy, he's not that smart. And I was like, nope, that's not my child. So I started asking a lot of questions and I spoke to his pediatrician and he sent me to someone to have John tested. And sure enough, textbook, classic dyslexic. But getting to that point was very difficult because everyone was trying to tear him down and tell me I was wrong. And, you know, you, I think you have to go with your gut, but that's kind of hard when you don't know what's going on. Right. And when like the so-called experts are saying, you know, like, well, just come to terms with it. He's not that bright. That's got to be very painful. It, it is painful, especially when you know, you know, it's not true. Right. That, that sense inside yourself, like, no, my gut is telling me something different. Something's wrong here. Something's not happening the way it's supposed to. And the explanation of just come to terms with it, he's not bright, he's a boy, whatever, just it wasn't sitting with you. No, not at all. I just knew that I had to keep investigating and finding a different answer 
because the one I was getting was just not working. I very often, I think, I think probably your, you know, background as an attorney helped you with that, that ability to research and, you know, not take the first no as your answer probably stood you in good stead. But I know for me as a child psychologist with a neurodiverse child, I remember having that sensation of knowing something was different, feeling very shamed, blamed, pathologized, like the school saying, like, you know, just face this or that, and knowing something else was going on, but not exactly knowing what, because when it's your own kid, it's different than when it's a child you're working with. And I very often use the analogy of parenting Peter Rabbit. You know, if you know the Beatrix Potter stories about Peter Rabbit and, you know, there's Flopsy, Mopsy, Cottontail, and they're kind of the predictable, regular, typically developing little bunnies who do everything that mommy says. And then you have Peter Rabbit, who's always getting into mischief. And, you know, I think parents and schools expect all their kids to be Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail. And then you have Peter Rabbit. And it's your job to be like, but he's bright. There's so much more. What you're seeing in school is tip of the iceberg. I definitely think so. And, uh, you know, besides my background, having three um, children who are a good bit older and also were unique and different in their own ways and learning styles, I knew that there could be a difference, but I also knew what was sort of, quote unquote, normal path. And I knew that John had so many qualities that were amazing I knew, though, that he was not following that normal path. And I just had to figure out why that was, how his how his intelligence was not meeting the milestones that he arguably was supposed to meet, which was like saying the ABCs and, and all that. And so it was, you know, through research and through asking a lot of people a lot of questions that I, you know, was able to get him tested his high IQ, you know, dyslexic, which I think a lot are, ADHD, which also had added to it. And so when I had the answer, honestly, even then it was a little difficult and scary because you have to figure out now what do I do to help him be his best self? And so that was enough, that was the next path. This is one of the reasons why I am not anti-diagnosis. A lot of, you know, there's a very big anti-diagnosis sort of trend in the world now, but I really feel strongly that naming the problem is the first step to conquering it. And if I look at it as sort of a problem, not like my child's a problem or their brain's a problem, but more like this is a hurdle. We need to figure out how to navigate it. This is a challenge. My kid, you know, it's sort of like being colorblind. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are in some ways deficient, but if my kid can't see colors, then I need to figure out how to teach him which is the red light and which is the green light, right? It's a problem that I have to navigate around because the world is just not set up for ADHD or for learning differences. So I have to figure this out. 100%. I think if you don't, if you don't admit, if you don't want to find, uh, you know, the name, and I get that sometimes name tags um, might feel limiting, but I think they're only limiting if you let them be. And I think giving something a name at least helps you find a good path to helping whatever it is. For John, it was learning through the Orton-Gillingham method. It was learning how to navigate his his ADHD with that. And, and it was finding the right for him to do this learning. And so, you know, you may not put your child on the bus and send him to school with everybody else in your neighborhood or however it works, but there is a path that is going to be successful if you 
if you have a name for whatever it is that you're trying to to work on. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that it's very empowering to be like, these are the obstacles we're going to have to navigate. That's all I see a diagnosis as. Like this, like an anxiety disorder just means this person's brain responds really well to threat, right? So now we have to figure out how to navigate that in a regular school day when a lot of things feel threatening. And when we look at it that way, it's not limiting at all. You know, I think my favorite book about adult ADHD is called, you mean I'm not lazy, crazy, or stupid? I'd rather be labeled as ADHD than lazy, crazy, or stupid. I totally agree. And I have to tell you that, you know, John was very little. He was six when we got the diagnosis. But he, in his own way, and he'll tell you, he was so relieved to know, you know, he didn't really know what dyslexic meant, but he knew now that it wasn't his fault, you know, that he wasn't stupid, that everyone was trying to tell him, his teachers, you know, that it wasn't going to be a negative. It was just something that made him different and and special, but different. And, and, you know, I think that label that he came to understand more, I think helped him be more successful because he felt less, less than it made him feel that he was unique and that was helpful to him. And that probably had something to do with your messaging also, right? The way you spoke to him about it. Were you guided by the professionals or was that your own thing to like tell him that this makes him special? This is his unique way of learning? I think it was honestly the way we decided, you know, to talk to him about it. And then after we investigated and found a great school, he realized that everybody there was the same as him. And so that was also very powerful for him. And he came to find that everybody that he went to school with for those couple of years were wonderful and smart and had their own superpower. And it was not a limiting thing. It was definitely a positive for for everyone there. So I think it's only a negative thing you can't, when you can't figure it out and help that child or person, adult. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think feeling like I'm just like everybody else in this class and we learn differently and this is how we learn here. Like this is the planet where I belong can feel very empowering. Definitely did for him and his, you know, fellow classmates and friends. It was very helpful for him. I think it really opened up his mind and it's and it's made him an empathetic person and it's given him the tools to to learn the way he needs to and he's become, you know, from that, he's a wonderful artist and he expresses himself in really amazing ways. So I think it's been an, a journey, but a journey that he's been very successful uh, at, at, you know. Thing. I think this is something I, I know research demonstrates that people with dyslexia tend to be very artistic and visual thinkers, right? So this is a real, this clearly played itself out in his life. Yes, it did. He, when he couldn't read or write, you know, he was drawing and then that just, you know, carried through in the way he expressed himself, even though he learned how to read and write beautifully, you know, he found a great passion for, for doing his art and expressing himself that way as well. Right. And I feel like you really see that in the book, like the the quirkiness of the illustrations, you know, this is definitely, definitely the illustrations that are how he sees the world. Yes. And we've had a lot of positive feedback. We've done some readings. We went back to his school and he was treated like a rock star. You know, they were, all the kids were 
were seeing themselves in him and, you know, really appreciated that he'd written this book and that to them. I don't I don't think there are enough books about neurodiversity children. And that's why we wrote this. And that's why we've decided to write a whole series on different neurodiverse issues based on the group of characters and adding some new ones. So it'll be the Creative Cab Company series, but it will address different neurodiverse issues. I certainly think there are not enough own voices, neurodiverse stories, because I think that is one of the strengths of this book. He knows what the lived experience of growing up with dyslexia is. He's probably had to navigate an airport. Oh, yeah. He, he, you know, navigate an airport, navigate walking down the street, making sure, you know, he had his lefts and his rights correct and was going downtown instead of uptown. And so that definitely comes through. And that's part of the reason we chose, you know, a car, a cab that in this case, because how would that car around if it needed to find if street signs or you know had a problem had a change in in the schedule and and how could they creatively figure out how to get where they needed to be so that's how we wrote the book i think you're also explaining in the book although it's not in there straight there's a lot of times when kids are neurodiverse people complain about their inflexibility and a lot of times the inflexibility comes from I figured out coping tools to navigate something that's invisible to you. You don't need to navigate it. It just makes sense to you. So when I figured out my coping tools and then you changed the schedule, changed the sign, rerouted, all of a sudden my coping tool doesn't work and now I'm panicking. And a lot of times parents don't get that about their neurodiverse kids and the kids themselves don't get that. And then when they're told we'll be more flexible For you, it's just flexible, you know, like, you know, go down A Street or B Street. It doesn't mean anything to you. Either way, you're coming to the same avenue. For me, if I don't go down the street with my familiar landmarks, I'm completely lost. Yes. And people don't understand that experience, what that feels like. There's a reason for the inflexibility. That's very true. And I think that society doesn't understand. They want everyone to fit into a box. You really look around, the world doesn't you know, boxes for every kind of person. And some of the most creative people have dyslexia or, you know, other neurodiverse challenges. You have Richard Branson, you have, you know, so many authors, illustrators and artists and playwrights who are dyslexic and have found different ways to navigate that. And I think it's really important to understand that, you know, that's what makes them unique and their their work unique. I think it's important to celebrate that. I think it's true. And I also think it's important to understand that there's an aspect of superpower here, right? That sometimes those things that make us, quote unquote, deficient, we don't fit into the standard box of the world, are also the very things that make us unique enough to see the world differently. And that's what art is. The art is the ability to see the world slightly differently and represent that to other people. I agree with you. And I know that John would say that too. It's been his way to express himself. And he's actually in grad school now in a graduate art program in Chicago. So he's uh, very excited to to explore other ways to do his art. Yeah, that, that passion and that ability to be like, well, this road is close to me, but this road is open to me. So I'm going to double down on going down that road can be really rewarding. He's very excited about learning learning new techniques. And I think 
all his friends, some with dyslexia, some with other other neurodiverse issues, they're all, you know, kind and empathetic and really creative people. They're artists and engineers and musicians. And I think everyone brings something different to the table, but they're also very accepting of each other. And it's something that I think the world needs more of, to be honest. Yeah. Were there times in John's life that he faced bullying or exclusion because of his dyslexia? 100%. And honestly, I hate to say it, but even from some of the educators in his early life before, we had some answers. We had teachers, first grade teacher, when he was tested, but before he went to the school he went to, he was in the public school in our town. And she said to me, I don't understand, you know, he's memorized the story, but he can't read it. And I said, well, he's dyslexic. We've had this conversation. And she truly did not understand what that meant. And even some of the learning specialists, they try very hard, but there are so many differences under the umbrella of a special education teacher, however you want to articulate it. They can't possibly know how to teach each child that comes through their door. I think as a society, we put... We don't give the teachers the tools they need. I think, especially in the younger grades, they don't have enough. There are too many kids. We don't give them enough of the tools to help them sort of understand what to look for in a unique child. And you can't just label them. You're being kinder than I would be. I see you like trying to like give the teacher the benefit of the doubt, right? Like, but that must have really been painful for you. Like to hear that, like he's memorized the story, but he's not reading it almost sounds like she's saying he's lazy or like mind over matter. He should be doing something differently. A hundred percent. And honestly, there's one teacher he had that every time I see her now, she was so horrible to John and then in me and me that every time I see her now, if I see her around town, I it's all I can do not to go up and go, you know, <laughs> so. I, I am trying to be nice, but yeah, it's hard. There's two sides to that because then there's the piece where like maybe when we do go over to someone and say, you know, that thing you said, it was harmful and it hurt, maybe then they change. Like maybe the next class of kids, they treat differently. I mean, she's probably retired now or whatever, but still. This is 20 years ago, but yeah. So I, trust me, I debate it all the time when I see her, but sometimes I think, it's a difficult conversation to start if you haven't had it when the time was probably a better time back in the day. So, you know, I get both sides to it, but I think it's very hard. I think there are just a lot of people who don't understand and who are unwilling to learn about it or just don't have the time or whatever it is. I think it's a problem for kids who are unique. I think there are some people who sort of come up with a explanation for why a child is the way they are and then don't confuse them with the facts. You know, like this is it. This is what they've decided and you just need to accept their version of reality. And that's that. Yeah, you can't change. It's, you know, sometimes first impressions. And I think sometimes um, teachers, educators make first impressions without the evidence and then don't want to change their mind. And that's why we decided to send John to a private school which was, um, you know, a good drive away, but he went there for a couple of years. It was an amazing place. And it you know, taught just kids who were dyslexic or had a language-based learning issue. And we decided as a family that it would be important because John really needed 
the education, but also the the stability of being in a community that was accepting because he had been bullied. Yeah. Bullied by, it sounds like, educators and fellow classmates. Yeah. The kids, you know, little kids tease and, you know, they're just not nice if you're quote unquote different. So it was not easy for him. Yeah. So this was an amazing place for him. And it was very, it really helped him, you know, grow and feel more powerful. So that investment of both probably money, time, resources to get him there sounds like it was worth it for you. It paid off. We did. We made a family choice, you know, with his siblings and my husband and, you know, wasn't always the easiest choice with other kids at home, but everyone was behind it 100 percent. And that also made it more successful. He was so fortunate to have this very supportive family that didn't see him as a problem, just saw an obstacle that needed to be navigated with him. Yes. And I, I don't want to speak for him, but I know that was very important to him. And it still is. The family stays, you know, very close. And I think that's important. I know it's sometimes difficult. People might have a family where they disagree on how to proceed. But I think I think in the end, if you can come to find a place of a family community that I think it's very helpful for the the child who needs something different, who needs a slightly different path. I think they need to feel that there is support behind them. I think for most post-traumatic parents where a lot of us have that sensation of, you know, doubting ourselves, not being sure what the best path for a kid is. Maybe I know I've spoken to so many post-traumatic parents who are hesitant about diagnosis because of like, you know, the label concept, you know, putting a child in a special program means in some way singling them out. And when your gut is saying my kid needs something different, I think your story really points to that, to really trust that gut and to do what the kid needs. I definitely think so. I think you really do have to listen to your gut and listen to your child. And if they're struggling with where they are, you have to figure out why and how you're going to change that because that struggle, especially when they're younger, will stick with them. You know, John still sometimes feels a little bit like, you know, is this okay? Am I doing this right? Because of how he was treated when he was little, even though he can, you know, his accomplishments. And I think that there's a little bit of that that always sticks with you from when you're younger. So I think if you can find a good way to help the child feel better about themselves. I think it's really important long, not just, you know, to learn, but as to who they are long-term. Yeah. Can you, when you were talking to John about his experiences, when you were planning the book, were there any stories he told you about his like earlier years or like his little kid years that surprised you? That's interesting. No, I think part of the beauty of driving him to this program, 45 minutes to an hour away, way was that we did get to spend a lot of time talking. So I think as we started to do this book, obviously there are, you know, stories that came out about, you know, a teacher or a classmate, but I think I was lucky that he's a communicative person and he and I have the kind of relationship where he was open about a lot of his struggles. So nothing too surprising, but, you know, your heart still tugs because you know that there was a lot of negativity from when he was little, that that was hard for him. And you don't want to see that for a child. You feel terrible and want to take it away from them. Are there any stories you're comfortable sharing or are they too personal? 
Well, you know, I, I mentioned the story about, you know, him being told that, uh, were, you know, he was sort of being lazy and uh, his nursery school teacher who's told me he was slow and even some relatives who thought that being dyslexic meant that he was less than, you know, he was not intelligent. There's a lot of misunderstanding and, you know, there's so many stories like that, but we were lucky in the end because my husband and I and my other kids were a unified front. And so I think that was helpful for John, but until he got into, into his private school, he definitely took a lot of abuse, you know, quote unquote, but yeah, yeah, he just wasn't treated nicely. And that was very hard. Yeah, and all that unjustified shame, right? I mean, like, this is, you came this way out of the box. It's not like you made this choice, right? And I feel, yeah, I've heard that from so many people. I remember a post-traumatic parent talking about how angry her mother-in-law was when she chose to put her child in an ABA preschool, not because she doesn't believe in ABA or anything along those lines, but when that bus shows up to your house, then the whole town will know that you have this child, you know, and just feeling like, so my kid is less beloved to his grandma because, you know, a different color school bus is showing up to our house was just really hard for her to swallow. I understand that completely. It it wasn't until we came out with the diagnosis and, and we were open with our extended family that it came out. If I had only known, if we had only known there was a grand, there was a, a grandmother who was dyslexic, even though back then they might not have called that. There are cousins that have dyslexia. And if people had been more open about it, then some of the confusion, I think, would have not been there because I would have been like, huh, this kind of sounds like so and so. I wonder if that's this. But we thought John was the only child in the entire extended family that was dyslexic. And if people had been more open and not feeling badly about it, then I think it would have been easier for him and for all of us. Yeah. I feel like sometimes on intakes in, you know, my psychotherapy practice, someone will come and I'll say, well, is there anyone in the extended family with OCD, with anxiety? And, you know, they'll say no. But then when I start asking questions, it's like, well, yeah, grandma doesn't, you know, answer the phone on Tuesdays and doesn't really do anything on Tuesdays. I'm like, oh, you got to wonder, is there perhaps an OCD component where there's lucky days and unlucky days or like I can't diagnose grandma, but it helps me say, "Mm, maybe this kid comes by this honestly. There might be some, you know, genetic, there are genetic components to certain neurodiversities and psychodiversities. And knowing that information is just helpful. Like then we can just attach on, you know, this is how I navigate this. This is how I handle this and there's better ways. Yes. It was interesting because, um, you know, you, you'll know this, but when I, you know, spent a lot of time talking to the person that tested him and she said to me that quite often parents would come in often the mother uh, wanting the child tested. And when she'd give the diagnosis, the father would usually the father would storm out and say, not my child. And so, you know, often the the two parents couldn't come to terms with it, one or both. And she said it was very difficult to try to explain and then to try to help them do what would be best for the child. So I get that. There's a lot of secrecy where, where unfortunately there doesn't need to be, but I think the society that happens quite a bit. 
unfortunately. Well, I think your book is part of that wave of let's normalize this, let's not pathologize this. The secret, like, you know, you're only as sick as your secrets kind of thought, right? Like, these things don't need to be secret. Like, you didn't do something illegal or immoral, right? Like, you were born with a learning difference. Somebody told us, and you have the book, but in the title, you know, it says, Robbie, the dyslexic taxi. And I can't tell how many people before we published it said, take the word dyslexic out. You will find a bigger audience. And we said, no, this is our audience. And they can buy it or not buy it. But this is, we want people to know that it's okay to be dyslexic or to be whatever your neurodiverse component of who you are is. And take it or leave it, but this is who we are. <laughs> so I think that's what happens when you're a mission-driven book, right? Like, the goal is the mission. Like, you know, the goal is not New York Times bestseller status. That's nice. But the goal is I want to speak to my people. Yes, 100%. And the the amount of positivity we've gotten from that has been amazing. And, you know, lovely people like you have asked us to talk about it. And we really appreciate that. I think it's hit a nerve. And we're proud of that. Yeah. I know in my book, one of, you know, when I was initially, you know, sending post-traumatic parenting out, like the proposal to the various agents, one agent, I feel like she was a little old fashioned, like in what she said, she said she didn't love, there's a, there's a lot of memoir in my book. Like I talk about my own trauma and how it impacted my parenting. And she said that, you know, talking about my own diagnosis might make me seem less, like less of an expert. Like, does anybody want to like see a psychiatrist, a psychologist who has a mental illness, right? Because PTSD is a mental illness. And I just remember being like, if I don't localize the book in my story, then other parents can't relate. I'm not a talking head who's just like, oh, PTSD can affect your parenting. It's PTSD affected my parenting. And at this point in my life, PTSD is sort of how my brain functions, not how my brain dysfunctions, right? And I feel like there's a lot of parents who have a trauma that has impacted their parenting in a lot of ways. And raising a neurodiverse kid can be one of them, right? And I feel like when we allow people to edit parts of our story out, we lose the authenticity of our story. I totally agree. And I honestly believe that if you took 20 people and had a conversation with them, every single one would have something that is unique to them. And whatever title you want to give to it, give, you know, fine. Some of them do have labels, some of them don't, but every single person has something and it makes them unique. And if you don't want to acknowledge that, then you're not really being authentic to who you are. And I feel like it's really important to address that. And when people see this book, they've either have a child who has dyslexia, have a sibling, know somebody, want to know more about it, are dyslexic. And the amount of positivity has been really, you know, almost humbling. It's We've had so much great support because of it. That's amazing. I think that when John went back to his elementary school and like read the book to the kids, did you get those moments of like, oh my gosh, that's me? It was so, I honestly, I get teary because when you get a diagnosis, you're like, okay, how am I going to help my child? And, you know, I didn't know anything about dyslexia and I was worried that he wouldn't be able to read and that's difficult in society. And when he, you know, got up there with this book that he co-wrote and illustrated and read to the kids. It was so amazing and heartwarming. And all the kids were, I'm telling you, treating them like a rock star. Can I have your autograph? 
And how do you, you know, how do you feel about it? And will you write more books? And what's your next book? And will you come back? It was, it was amazing for him to feel that way, to feel the praise and for me to see him in this light. It was just really terrific. So like I said, it makes me teary, you know, as uh, watching him in, in his mid twenties, you know, being this, this amazing person. Yeah. Being the exemplar, like right to other people, I think is, is really something special. Um, In post-traumatic parenting, we talk about my aim model, which is like the three aspects of recovering from trauma is acceptance, like not trying to make it not have happened, integrating it into yourself and sort of discovering it as your superpower and then mission, right? Turning whatever trauma we had into a mission in life. And it sounds like that's what he successfully has navigated or you and he both have successfully navigated that. He is absolutely, he is that person and he's done that. So it's been really wonderful watching his journey, I have to say. Yeah. And I wonder also when you were working on the book, like during COVID and, you know, figuring out what, like, you know, sort of what examples and incidents to like include in the book were some of them taken, were some of the challenges taken from experiences that John actually had? Yes, he definitely had trouble, you know, when he was little, some of the classic, he didn't know his left from his right, difficult. So we found a way around it. If you hold up your left hand, it's going to be backwards in the screen. It's an L shape. And so we he learned to navigate his left from his right by holding up his hand and, and going, okay, this is my left. I have to go this way. It's not this way because backwards. So like find ways for him to compensate and to navigate what was easy for other people. So that's part of the worry, you know, reading the signs. Obviously he can do that now, but back then he couldn't tell you what street sign it was or how to spell the name of the road we live on. So we definitely took parts of all of that and to combine it. We had a book that was quite long that we had to cut down for children. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like all books are like that. You know, they, they start big and they have to like get refined down. That's the hardest part. Right. We can't, we can't have a 50 page book. <laughs> not, not for kids. <laughs> not for kids. <laughs> so, what's next? Like, are you coming out with more books? Like, what's your, what's your like five year, 10 year plan on this? So we decided we had talked about having a series, but we weren't sure what it would be like. But the reception has been so positive that we've decided we're definitely doing a series. It's called The Creative Cab Company. And in that, in the uh, cab company will be, you know, Robbie, but um, new friends and friends with um, other issues. The next book is going to be about an ADHD uh, car. And because we found that there are quite a few uh, different neurodiverse people that have more than one thing that drives them, that makes them who they are. And for dyslexics, there are quite a few that have ADHD. So we thought that that would be a next, a great next step, and and we're working on it. And when when we told the kids in in his old school, they're like, "Yay!" <laughs> they all were like, oh, "That's yeah. adorable." <laughs> yeah, so. They can't wait to meet the next the next character. Yeah, because they see themselves in it. So it was terrific. Tell me in terms of, you know, navigating your relationship with John now that he's an adult. And I'm assuming you're saying he's in grad school, so he's out of the house. 
What's that transition been like? You know, I mean, COVID was so hard on everyone for different reasons. And for John, he was home from grad, from college and he was an art major and you can't do art virtually. And, you know, it's very hard. So we, you know, again, got to spend a lot of time together. And at the time, I was also reading books uh, to my grandchildren on face, you know, FaceTime. And so we started talking about how could John do his art uh, more than just the the work that was not really that appealing for that that successful for college. And we we came to do this book, and we've really learned a lot about working together, not just as mother and son, but as a team. And it's been a, a great experience, I have to say. So, and even now we talk to each other quite a bit because of the book, about the podcast, about the next book, about, you know, a magazine interview we've done. So it's been really rewarding to have a new relationship with him, not just mother and son. It's almost like dyslexia gave you a, you know, gave you this gift of this extended relationship where, like you're saying, a partnership. Yeah, it's been it's been really wonderful. I have to say, we told each other that we needed to be partners, too. So we put on different hats when we have to have book conversations. And obviously, the mother son part trickles in. But we've tried to really make it work you know, successfully. And I, I think we have, we've been very lucky that way. Yeah. I know it's something that and on post-traumatic parenting, we don't talk about this a lot because we talk about the younger kids, but I know for myself, my children span the ages, meaning I have adult children and I have still small children and that navigating the like relationship with an emerging adult, I think was not something I was prepared for. Like the way it would feel like both a triumph and a loss was hard. Oh, when my first child, uh, who's 36, when she was ready to go to college, I was like sobbing. I was like, you know, you prepare them to go, but I don't really want them to leave. Very hard. So I totally get that. You're successful when they're launched, but it's hard to, to let them be launched. You know, there's a loss. You grieve that part of your relationship, but then you're lucky that it can grow into another kind of relationship. So, you know, there's that to look forward to. With trauma, I feel like all loss is loss. Even a happy loss feels like a loss. But yes, there is that new adult relationship that is so surprising and so special. And they, the nice thing is they, at least, you know, if, if you've done the, you know, attachment piece well and you've done the childhood well, they come back. In a different way, but but you know the little ducklings come swimming back every so often. They do, they do, and now luckily some of them are bringing new little ducklings, so that's great too. <laughs> so yeah, and think about like your grandkids having like you know a grandma and an uncle who is you know can write picture books. That's probably pretty cool for them. I have to say it's adorable. My uh, grandson is in second grade, and my granddaughter's in nursery school, and. Um, This past weekend, we went into a bookstore and talked about the book, and they've brought it to their classrooms. And um, I read to uh, my grandson's classroom last year. It opened up wonderful conversations, not just with them, but with their fellow students on what it means to be dyslexic, because they're at an age where they're starting to learn to read. 
And I think it's been really rewarding for them to see that. And my grandson always says, you know, that he wants to be an artist too. And obviously he's little, but he sees this all as a plus. They both do. That's been really wonderful and rewarding as well. Yeah, this is the way that I imagine, like, you know, for your first of all, for your grandson, how cool that is, but also the idea that in some ways, this is also anti-bullying, right? Like the next dyslexic kid in that elementary school will have a very different reception than your son had, even for the teacher, like hearing the story. You know what? Um, I, the, uh, my granddaughter's class wrote, you know, they wrote their names, but the teacher wrote a note after she read the book. And my grandson, the teacher asked for more copies so that there could be a bigger conversation for her class and for the school. So that's, you know, also very rewarding. Hopefully, hopefully we're going to be of an age where people talk about differences and see them as differences, not as a negative. Yeah, I feel like we are entering a generation like that where we're much more aware. It doesn't mean that Things are still not problematic sometimes, but I think this awareness and this like willingness to expand the way we teach for all kids and, you know, to talk about these things that used to sort of be swept under the rug is that aren't even shameful, but nonetheless were swept under the rug is, you know, growing. Maybe it's because of social media. Maybe it's because how, you know, education has changed since covid but I feel like we are entering a much more hopeful era when it comes to, you know, this kind of inclusivity. I hope so. I hope so, because I think it's really important. You don't know what gift the person you're talking to might have for you, for the world, for, you know, I think it's really important to to take individuals and learn from them. And that's definitely something that I have learned on this journey, you know, with John. Like you said, you you know, when you have, how did you say ducklings and, you know, they start out and you think they're going one way. I think every parent assumes that their kid is going to, you know, hit certain milestones. And I think that John has given me the gift, all of us, of understanding that everyone is unique and special. And that's definitely opened up, you know, my mind and, and the mind of my family in our hearts. I think it's really given us a whole lot that was has been wonderful and maybe at the time, you know, back then unexpected, but really a gift. Yeah, in the end, right? And I think that if you could talk to like your younger self, I think that's probably what you would say, right? That in the end, this will turn out to be a gift. Yes. I have a friend who's a pediatrician. And when I got the diagnosis, I called her crying. I'm like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to navigate it. And she's like, you know, you'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. You have great support. It's not a negative. It'll be a positive you'll see. And she had seen so many children, you know, she helped me believe it. And she was right. Yeah, we need those friends, right? Those people that can sort of both reflect reality back to us, like you've got this, you can handle this, but also to be there. Yeah, you need both, I think. You need the support and you need you need the understanding and the support. And I think it's really important. I hope people can find that when they're faced with, you know, similar issues. And if they can't, they need to try to find a community now on social media or different groups. I think it's really important to find that support in whatever form it comes in. Yeah, because otherwise what ends up happening is we take on too much responsibility, right? We're looking for like where we went wrong as opposed to how do I help this kid, 
A hundred percent. And I think, you know, podcasts like yours really help with the conversation. It opens it up and you realize that you're not the only one. And I think this is, you know, amazing and a wonderful opportunity. And I hope people listen and reflect on how, how it can help them in their own lives. Yeah, I think that without awfulizing, it's so important to understand that very often having a neurodiverse kid is an aspect of trauma. That not the kid, and not that we're not grateful for the kid, and not that we love the kid less, but those years before the diagnosis, those years when the kid's not fitting in, before they're in the correct educational environment, before, like I said, we've named what's going on, that feeling of like, my kid's not like the other kids, and everybody has different ideas of why, and everybody's telling me there's something wrong with my kid. And I don't think there's something wrong with my kid. I think that there's a challenge that my kid needs to navigate. That sinking, horrible feeling can be, I remember with one of my children when he was going through a really rough patch in school, I saw this very, um, I saw this very visually because I was about to get onto my treadmill and my treadmill has one of those like, you know, chest straps that tells you your heart rate. And I hadn't started my workout yet. I was literally entering, like getting onto the treadmill, but I was already hooked up and my son was being bullied and was getting into a lot of fights and a lot was going on. And a call came in and my phone had one of those, you know, like where it says call from and it said the name of my son's school. And my heart rate went from like 90 to 160 like on the treadmill I saw it. And it turned out to be just like a reminder of like a bus form or something. But like that feeling of like the school's going to call and my heart rate's going to go through the roof. Yeah, that's traumatic. Oh, yeah, it is. And I think those points are the ones that stay stay with you. You definitely... I think the difficult times are the times that you learn the most from, but they're definitely they're difficult times and and they're the ones that you definitely remember. Yeah. I was actually listening to a podcast interview with Kelly Clarkson and she was talking about how her childhood of adversity set her up for a lot of creativity and a lot of strengths and but she also said like I in some ways I feel bad for my children like they're never going to like live on ramen noodles because they're 59 cents. But then they're deprived of the experience of living on ramen noodles for their 59 cents. So you're willing to try anything and you're willing to fight in that way. And, you know, she makes a good point. I wouldn't sign my kids up for that either. I wouldn't sign my kids up for my PTSD. But at the same token, a lot of my superpowers come from those struggles. It's true. It's a it's a double edged sword. Exactly. Like, you know, you don't want to see your child in pain or you don't want to remember that pain. But on the other hand, it's definitely a learning experience. And I think, you know, no matter how you try to shield yourself, your children, you just have to sort of find them, figure them out and meet them head on. And, and you know, may take a while to, may take a lifetime to get over some of those traumatic feelings. But I think, I think it's important to, to try to do that and to, you know, just do the best you can. And I think that's, you know, Hopefully what we're all doing is just doing the best you can and for yourself and for your family. I think one of the things we can all learn from you is this, for any post-traumatic parent who's in that beginning stage of like my kid's not developing the way other kids are, people are shaming and blaming him, people are putting that kid down, I think is your belief that there's a problem here, I'm going to help figure it out, I'm going to solve it. And my kid's going to be okay in the end. You had a lot of faith. And I think you you were fortunate that you had family support, that, you know, your husband was on board, the other kids were on board, because that could have, you know, been 
when we don't have that privilege, that's hard. But you had that faith that you and your son were going to figure it out together. Yes. I just, I knew, like you said, I was lucky that I had the support and I've known people who didn't, but I, I knew from other, you know, struggles that maybe I had had that, that this was going to be something that I would help him figure out. And we did it. And there were, you know, sometimes there was a little bit rolling back down the hill while you were trying to get up, but we figured it out and we kept walking up. And yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that is really important. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Where can the post-traumatic parenting um, you know, community find you? So we would love to hear from you. We're on social media as the Creative Cab Company on Instagram and Facebook. We have a page, a web page. It's um, a website. It's uh, Robbie the Taxi, and it's going to be Creative Cab Company. We're in the middle of of switching it since we didn't start that way. So you know, DM us on on the web page. You can um, contact us. We'd really love to hear from you and get your input, and you know, see what you think and and share your stories. So we are definitely going to link to every way you can find Lynn and John on you know, on social media in the show notes. So if you're looking for the book or if you're looking to find out what they're up to or what's next, then you can find it, like I said, in the show notes. And um, I can't wait to see, I can't wait to see the ADHD cab book. I like, that sounds like fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. We really appreciate John said to say hello and thank you. And we really appreciate the opportunity that you've given us here. So we hope everyone buys the book. They can buy it on, you know, any of the normal like Amazon and um, barnesandnoble.com. And uh, we hope you enjoy it and appreciate the time that you've given us here. Thanks so much. Thanks for sharing your story. I think it's going to be really inspirational and helpful to a lot of post-traumatic parents. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents, too. Can't wait to hear from you.